I hope we can say that today in all seriousness, that the Lord has touched us and made us whole. This morning, I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33. Now this is what is so startling uh, and wonderful about the Word of God. So for several months we have been preaching through the book of Nehemiah, which is roughly 2,800 years ago. Now today we're going to back up some almost 2,900 years, uh, roughly uh, 70 to 80 90 years before what we see happen in Israel with Nehemiah and the walls. You know, it's been said that Jeremiah uh, has been called the weeping prophet, and you'll see why. Uh, it is uh, readily understood that in all the years of Nehemiah's ministry as a prophet of God, I mean, he was put into the dungeon where he sunk up in the mud, all these kinds of things. And there are no recording anywhere of one single conversion during his life. I can't imagine as a pastor to stand and never hear someone say, man, the word of God touched me today. The Lord has saved me. The Lord has shown me something. No one, he was called a traitor. He was considered treasonous in his day. No doubt, shed many a tear for his country and his people. This weekend, we've had our annual Independence Day celebration. And I would challenge you, and I, I'm not pointing fingers, and please don't take it the wrong way. Uh, and we can say happy fourth, but let us, we're, we're, we're notorious as Americans in shortening everything. We shorten names, we shorten holidays, we shorten anything and everything to make it quick to the point that real words become uh, abbreviated words which become initials and they eventually fade out of existence. It is Independence Day for a reason. Uh, I, I watched a thing, I've seen it several times, where a man on the street interviews Americans, American citizens, and asks them, what happened? Why do we celebrate Independence Day. Independence from what? And uh, one just flat out says, I don't have a clue. I didn't do history. For all of you who say, I hate to read, don't say that out loud. Please don't say that out loud. For we are breeding a culture that does not understand the price that has been paid. And thus we are reaping the whirlwind because we now have a young generation that have no clue what has happened in the past, only what some liberal professor may have told them in some college class. They don't understand the words absolute despotism. They do not understand what the King of England was doing to Christians and how they were not allowed to worship as they saw fit. And so as we came to America, our forefathers, they began to explore not only a country, but their relationship with God. And the king says, I'll have none of it. 
And we see that great document, the Declaration of Independence. I do not mind saying, I am very proud to say that I am an American. I am thankful that I hold a United States of America passport so that whether I'm going through customs in Israel and they're slapping me on the back and they're looking at me and said, you American? And I said, yes, I'm American. Go Donald Trump. They, there was an old Orthodox Jew told me that at the Wailing Wall in Israel. You can say whatever you want. You can vote however you want. But I'm telling you something. When the nation of Israel stands with America because America stands with it, that makes me even prouder. When you get on a boat and ride across the Sea of Galilee and they they're, they're flying, flying the Israeli flag, it's, you know, a boat on Israeli waters, but all of a sudden they, they're playing Christian music, but they stop the Christian music and the deckhand walks to the front. I've told you all this, but it is so just exciting and, and it gives me thrills to think back. They walk up and all of a sudden you hear the drums. You know exactly, exactly what they're about to play. Because I have stood on the side of a baseball field or stood on the side of the gridiron. I have been to so many games where I've heard it. To the point that it's like if you hear the national anthem, it's P.S. play ball. But it stands for something and they raised the American flag on an Israeli vessel and played the national anthem. My national anthem. Your national anthem. I am proud. I'm telling you something. In the world we're living in today, don't buy into anti-patriotism. There is nothing wrong. Matter of fact, there's everything right with standing up for what you believe in. You see, we've been sold this misconception. If I can just take just a moment. There is no PowerPoint. There's none of this. So everybody's got to listen and focus today. Listen to me. We've been sold a package of good, a lie that says if you're a Christian, number one, you cannot confront sin. Because in doing so, you judge. And the Bible says, don't judge. We're taking our theology from lost people? You know, the problem is we've not studied our Bible enough to know what it says about judging. And how to judge a situation. How do we know, I just preached on it, how do we know we're unequally yoked? How do we know who to go into business with and not to go into business with? How do we know how to protect our children from some friends and allow other friends into that circle? How do you do that? You judge. How do you know? How do you know who to marry? So, well, I pray about it. Listen, the Word of God teaches us that we are to test the waters, we are to look at a tree to know whether it bears fruit or not and what kind of fruit it bears. And then to stand against sin, it says, well, you Christians are supposed to love. I'm telling you something. Listen to me. If you've ever corrected your children, you get this, but maybe you don't understand how to put it in words. 
Just because you condemn sin does not mean you condemn a person. Stand against sin, get on your knees for a sinner. Does not mean you don't love them, quite the contrary. If you love your kids, you really love them, you don't want them to fall into the pitfalls of this world, do you? Do you? You want, to, you want your children to grasp truth and to avoid the pitfalls. And if you're like me, the ones I stepped in that my daddy and mother warned me about and I didn't listen. Listen, we're so blessed to live in the land of the free, in the home of the brave, where we are guaranteed under our founding doc doctrine and documents the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But we're watching this grand experiment of government, of the people, by the people, and for the people, imploding from within. There's no channel you can turn to and avoid it. Listen, we live in troubled times. Would you agree with that? We have trouble on every hand. We have trouble in our country. We have trouble between different factions. We have trouble in health issues. We have trouble in our courts. We have trouble everywhere. Recently, we've witnessed peaceful protests giving way to violent and destructive rioting. Law enforcement as a whole has been demonized by the rogue actions of a very, very, very small minority. Millions, if not billions of dollars has been just damaged that's been brought about through a mob who hates anything and everything about America. Why? Because somebody told them to. They're not old enough to even understand why. They just know they're supposed, to, if they're going to be in, then, you know, when I was growing up, to be in, you wore a certain kind of blue jeans or certain kind of shoes or wore a certain kind of hat or drove a certain kind of vehicle. Now it's about whether you're willing to go out and yell profanity at a police officer and tear something up. My friends, there's never a cause for that. These mobs are pushing for socialism. And they seemingly are ignorant of the history or suffering and death that's been perpetrated by it. And so they are not revisionists, they're reconstructionists. Because if they can tear down all the monuments, if they can tear down every statue, then they can write a whole new history. And then we'll never hear about the Boston Tea Party. We'll never hear about Paul Revere's ride. We'll never, ever hear about Nathan Hale and those forefathers who cried, give me liberty, give me death. Today the cry is, give me what I want and don't say anything about it. Back then, those family members Fathers, farmers, blacksmith, 
They had a musket propped up inside their door, and at the drop of a hat, they would grab that gun and go and fight for the freedom of this country. Church, it's time to wake up to the troubled times that we live in. In America, we still have the protection of the First Amendment, but we see our rights being stripped and eroding even before our eyes. While we dare not compare our plight to that of our brothers and sisters in Iraq or Syria or even China, the day may soon come when American Christians suffer the same fate. Y'all hear what I'm telling you? I don't know if you get this. Really, really get it. But there have been pastors and preachers locked up in the last three months in the United States of America for preaching the gospel. You say, well, they were quarantined and all this. Listen, that, you're right, but it's still our law provides for the freedom of choice. You say, well, it's just not very smart. That's not the point. The point is that when we start locking up proclaimers of the gospel and say, yes, but it's all right for peaceful protest, then our government has run amok. By the way, if you're not registered to vote, the very first thing you ought to do tomorrow is go and register to vote. And if you think, well, it won't matter, this may be the most important year that it's ever mattered. Y'all hear what I'm telling you? Listen, we still have protection. But these countries are suffering and we're headed that way. Just like in Jeremiah's day, we live in very troubled times. Jeremiah preached prior to the 70-year Babylonian captivity of Israel. He died not long after the captivity began, maybe 10 years into it. He must have been, it must have been a very depressing time to live and to minister. Nothing, nothing was positive. Everything was negative. Long gone were the glory days of David and Solomon, where David would march in and they'd say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And they would dance and they would have an unbelievable celebration of victory in Israel. Even Hezekiah's revival that happened a century earlier must have seemed like ancient history. It truly had become Ichabod. The glory had gone out. And although the church and Israel are not the same, we can relate. Thankfully, God gives us a word of hope in troubled times. It begins with the Lord's famous promise in verse 3 of Jeremiah 33. Look with me at verse 1. Jeremiah 33, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus says the Lord who made it. Now I'm going to tell you something. If the world asks you, your opinion, your co-worker, your children, your neighbor, if anybody walks up to you and says, what do you think about this? Before you open your mouth, go to the Word of God, as several have held their Bibles up even today, and say, thus saith 
the Lord who made it. And as much as we celebrate independence, and one, one person was asked, what are we selling independence from? From the South. The South of what? The South of the United States is where we won over the South. When did it happen? 19, I uh, know it had to be 1870-something. Well, they were only about four or 5,000 miles and 110 years off. We need to understand, thus saith the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you. I don't know about you, but that just, that's just the most reassuring thing there is, isn't it not? Have you ever been in dire need and it wasn't around a church setting? wasn't where there were any friends, but it was a severe issue of health or finances or relationship or something, and you cried out, and in almost amazement, God heard you. And there was an answer. There were peace. Peace that overwhelmed you. You see, God tells us to call upon him and he will answer us. And he will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. There's a lot our country doesn't know yet. And it's our job as believers to proclaim it. Listen, today, like Israel bold, God, we see, will reveal his promise to us in troubled times. First of all, Based on this fact, in the midst of these troubled times, God promises a new birth. Look with me in verse 4. Now he said, call upon me. Oh, I'm, listen, the first time Jeremiah went and says, hey, we're going, we're going to be ravaged. God says that we're going to be taken captive because of our sin. The second time he says, hey, now it's upon you but call upon me and I will hear you, verse 4, for thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the king of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men whom I will slay in my anger and my fury. He's talking about the children of Israel that's going to be slain. Now, when we start looking at revival, you know, we're all about revival and reform and all these kind of great things as long as it don't cost us anything. We're all about kids getting saved in Bible school as long as we don't have to get dirty or spend more than two and a half, three hours there. We're all about revival as long as we don't have to go Sunday through Wednesday night. We got other things to do. And while Rome burns, we stand out and play our fiddles. And while our ship sinks, the band plays on. Church, do you understand there's a cost? There's a cost to remain a Christian nation. There's a cost 
to growing a church according to the Word of God. There's a cost to protecting your children, protecting your family, and growing in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Israel was being prepared to face this captivity because of her sin. In fact, the entire city of Jerusalem with its beautiful temple of Solomon, we just read where they come in, they lay the foundation we saw in Ezra and in Nehemiah where they build the walls around that city again, showing that God was once again had his hand of reconciliation and salvation upon it. All of this at this time had been ransacked and totally destroyed. Stone upon stone, torn down. You see, he tells us in verse 4 and 5 that sin, make no mistake about it, destroys us. You cannot avoid it. You may think you've escaped it. Young people, listen to me. Because mom and daddy don't know, you've not escaped anything. As R.G. Lee preached thousands of times, there's going to be a payday someday. And some of us live old enough to realize that and, and plead forgiveness, but many don't. Many face God unprepared, undone, or not living the way God has called us to live. This is not the first place we see that. We see it all through Scripture, not just in Romans. Exodus 18, or Ezekiel 18, 20 says, The soul who sins shall die. Romans 5, 12, Therefore just as sin entered into the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all have sinned. Romans 6, 23, The wages, the payment for sin is death. James 1.15 in the original text said, sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. There's a direct link between sin and death. And it cannot be separated. Adam and Eve experienced an immediate spiritual death. God says, if you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Now I want you to hear what I'm about to tell you. And I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Satan did not write a whole new diatribe. He didn't come up with a whole new doctrine. Changed one word. He didn't even change a word, he added one. And a little word at that. God said, you shall surely die. Four words. Satan said, you shall not surely die. Five words. The moment you allow some preacher on TV or some author in some newfangled book, somebody that's got their wokeness in order to tell you there's a little bit more to it, you're smarter, you need to understand and read between the lines, I'm telling you, God still says, if you sin, you shall surely die. If not, the funeral homes would have went out of business a long time ago. But not only are they not going out of business, business is really good. You see, even though it was an immediate spiritual death, it was a gradual physical death, death by degrees. From the moment they chose sin. Israelites had destroyed some of their own houses, he said in verse 4. It said the city and the houses 
have been torn down, which they pulled down to fortify. They even tore their own houses to try to protect themselves against the onslaught. It's amazing at the extreme that we will go to to try to keep ourselves from judgment. But make no mistake about it, there is nothing you can do to stop the judgment of God. There's no place you can go. There's nowhere to hide. Listen, God made the hiding places. Jonah could not get away from God. Israel could not get away from God. Matt cannot get away from God, and you surely cannot get away from God. He tells us in verse 5, in the latter part, look at this. This is, the, it sends cold chills up my spine. It says that God had hid his face from the city. Church, I want you to hear me. We don't get on our knees. And I'm guilty. I'm going to tell you something. This whole quarantine business, this whole coronavirus business, everything else going on in the country, it's real hard not to be, be depressed. I'm just being transparent with you. When I can't go visit church members in the hospital, when we can't do our normal routine, and even though you are, many of you are essential employees and you're still going, things are just different, are they not? And it just, it seems like the world is so out of order and in utter chaos. We can't get on a plane and go to Guatemala. We can't go here and go to a ball game. I'm going to tell you something. You think it's bad now? Let the end of August, 1st September get here and there not be any college football. Me and you going to have to do something to cheer each other up. You hear what I'm saying? We're going to have to look after each other. I mean, it'll be amazing how much we'll be able to get done around the house if there's no college football. But, and I say that jokingly, but hey, I'm serious too. But the truth is, there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to stop God's judgment on us, on his people, and on the land. When God hides his face from us, there's nothing else to be done. We must pray. Israel could not save themselves. Likewise, we can do nothing about the death sentence that sin is placed on our soul. As in Adam died, Adam died, so shall all that are in Adam die. But here's the great news. Though sin destroys, grace, grace greater than all our sin, grace restores us. You see, God had promised his people that like the proverbial phoenix rising up out of the ash heap of ruin, they would enjoy a new birth which would lead to an even greater existence. Before they ever even got into captivity good, God had already prepared deliverance. Do you understand the impact of Genesis 3 when God cursed Adam by the sweat of his brow? When God cursed woman in her childbirth and God cursed the serpent in slithering on the ground, 
right smack dab in the middle of the curse, God announced there's going to be deliverance. Even in the midst of God's judgment, there was love. That's where we keep from being legalistic and realize all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God promised his people deliverance. Romans 6, 23, you remember when we quoted the first part a while ago? The wages of sin is what? But there's not the period. That's right, there's a conjunction. One who contrasts. This is a contrasting sentence. There is A, not A and B, it's A opposite B. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hallelujah. The new life will produce a new health. He said in verse 6, well, look at this. In the midst of corona, COVID-19, quarantine, pandemic, whatever good, big, nasty word you want to call it, I want you to take hope. I want you to take hope. Behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. A truly healthy life is one that has peace, peace and truth abiding in it. Can I, can I tell you something? doesn't mean you're just going to avoid the virus. And it does not mean you're going to avoid physical death. But what it does mean that in the midst of that, we can be healthy in our relationship to Christ. Regardless of our physical condition. Some of the happiest people I've ever met in my life were people in nursing homes, People who were laying on their deathbed that knew where they were going and saw that heaven was a lot closer than it had ever been. And God had given them that grace that goes beyond our understanding. It's a new health that God provides. But then a new home. Listen, Babylon or Persia was never meant to be their home. And it never would be. Jeremiah, even, he didn't even die in Babylon. He died in Egypt. And even though some would spend their entire lives in this captivity, they knew that God was preparing a homeland back in Jerusalem. And they longed to see the lights of that glorious city on a hill. You remember when God told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation? Abraham never saw it. But he believed. And his faith was accounted unto him for righteousness. God showed him in a vision far off. He showed him through a chosen son. We see through his son, and then through his sons, the nation being born. We see Jacob's name changed to Israel. We see them go through bondage. We see them go through 40 years in the wilderness. We see them walk across on dry land. And we see God grant them victory over the giants in a land flowing with milk and honey. And by the way, as soon as they open that thing back up, we're going back. And I encourage you to be praying about it, saving your money, saving your dollars. If you've ever thought about going, 
We're going to try to take a trip back and lead a trip back next year as soon as it begins to open back up when it's safe to go. It will blow your mind to walk where Jesus walked. To look down into that valley and say, right there, not in this general 100 hundred mile radius, right there, that Jordan River, right there beside Jericho, leading into the Dead Sea, right there's where Joshua led the Hebrew children into the promised land. Listen, when grace comes upon us, there's a new help, there's a new home. He said in verse 7, I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and we'll rebuild those places as at the first. By nature, I'm, I, I try to think very logically. I'm not into conspiracy theory. I'm just not. I mean, I believe there was one gun, and there was nobody on the grassy knoll. That's just who I am. I believe Elvis is really dead. But I'm going to tell you, in the last six months, I've been open to the idea because, listen, Satan is as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. And if we look at the ploys and the plots that he's put in place over the, the, uh, uh, the thousands of years back all the way to Adam and Eve, nothing surprises me. But I want to encourage you with this word. We're closer than we've ever been to glory. Y'all agree? There's some days I'm convinced this is the day. Not just it may be the day, this is going to be the day. But oh, that our faith would be increased to see it as Paul did, that every day he woke up said this could be the day. Peter said this could be the day. And that's 2,000 years ago. But if it is not the day, I want to encourage you with something. We don't know. We're to be prepared and looking for it, but we don't know. And in that fact, we ought to be living as if we're going to live the rest of our life to old age here, looking to share the gospel and looking for another great revival. Don't, don't forget, the greatest revivals came at the most depth of depravity in mankind. That's when God sent revival. In Hezekiah's day, don't forget, Jonah, that rebellious prophet that had tried to go as far to the edge of the earth to get away, when he went a day's journey proclaiming repentance to a judging holy God, the whole city repented. The whole city. A new health, a new home, then a new heart. He said in verse 8, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity." If there's something in your life you can't get past, give it to Jesus and leave it there. It is an arrogant, pompous thing to say, I can't forgive myself. When the Lord of all says, I will forgive you. And if you plead for his forgiveness, then you're forgiven. We sang about it this morning. We're forgiven. Oh, may we rejoice in that. Listen, a new heart. I love this text. If you want to receive new life and a new home, then you've got to have a new heart. 
There needs to be a heart transplant. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit. People who claim to know Jesus and nothing ever changes. Their language doesn't change. Their behaviors doesn't change. Their running mates and their playground, nothing changes. Tells me there's no new heart. And they've truly never met the one. The agent of change. He said, I'll give you a new heart. A new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is what forgiveness and cleansing looks like. God will not reform you by patching up your old, rotten, broken down heart. It's not the way God works. Listen, I've been working on a 1966 Chevelle for 17 years. Took the body completely off the frame. Most of the body parts, except for the firewall and the roof, have been replaced. Fenders, doors. We put new suspension, new brakes, new everything. And as soon as we get it ready to go and get it on the road, Radiator hose burst in my face. Tailpipe falls off. Sensor won't work. Something breaks. Something rattles. Something squeaks. Because you see, even though it's got a bunch of new parts and it's all painted new on the outside, and all from a distance, it looks really good, it's still a 50-something-year-old car. Y'all hear me? It's still 50-something years old. It's not new. It's old with new parts. But when God rushes into our life, He doesn't just cut off one piece, and He doesn't just patch up and paint one piece and smooth something over. He gives us new. He makes us new. Just as Jesus was dead and became alive walking out of that tomb, he's made us alive in him. You see, in troubled times, God promises, promises us a new worth. Then it shall be to me, he said in verse 9, a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all nations of the earth, who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. Thus saith the Lord, again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say it is desolate now. Without men and without beasts in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man, without inhabitant, and without beast, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, in this place will be heard the voice of those who will say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. The new birth will lead to a new worth. New worth means that we are no longer a detriment to the kingdom of God. We have been redeemed, we have gone from useless to useful. We have gone from being a liability to being an asset. We now have worth and a divine purpose in life. Redeemed how I love 
to proclaim it. That song was written by Fanny Crosby. You all know Fanny Crosby, who wrote many, many hymns. Matter of fact, she began writing poems at a very early age, between five and eight years old. And it's believed she had penned over 9,000 poems and over 5,000 hymns. And yet she did not write her first hymn till the age of 40 years old. Fanny Crosby was born on March 24, 1820 in Brewster, New York. When she was young, at the age of six weeks old, she caught a cold that led to inflammation in her eyes and an incompetent doctor applied a poultice to her eyes that left her blinded. For the rest of her life, she was blind. Listen, some of her other well-known songs include To God Be the Glory. Y'all know that? To God be the glory. Safe in the arms of Jesus. All the way the Savior leads me. Jesus keep me near the cross. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. And one of my favorite of all, blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. She wrote those. From a young age, Crosby learned about the love of God at the knee of her grandmother who would read to her from the Bible and taught her how to pray. In the fall of 1850, Crosby was invited to attend a revival meeting with her friend Theodore Camp. At first she hesitated, but that night she had a very disturbing dream. She dreamed. It seemed that the sky had been cloudy for a number of days. And finally, someone came to me and said that Mr. Camp desired to see me at once. This was all a dream. She said, then I thought I entered the room and found him very ill. The dying Camp asked if she would meet him in heaven after their death. She replied, yes, I will. God helping me. This was the response she get, had been given by her dying grandmother when she asked her the same question. In the dream, just before he died, Camp admonished, remember, you promised a dying man. Fanny recorded, then the clouds seemed to roll from my spirit, and I awoke from the dream with a start. I could not forget those words, will you meet me in heaven? And although my friend was perfectly well, I began to consider whether I would really meet him or anyone else in the better land if called to do so. She attended those camp meetings, which often contained sermons we classify as hellfire and brimstone. The blind poet went forward not once, but twice over the course of the meetings. She stated that even with the elders laying hands on her, she rose up both times without feeling anything or getting happy. By the third time, hear me now, Crosby made her way to the altar on November 20th. She was anxious and frustrated. This time she was literally frantic. It seemed to me that the light must come then or never. Crosby was the only person to answer the call that night. Many of us, when the altar call is given, say, well, if somebody else goes, I'll go. That night she was the only one. The only one. And the elders, once again, 
prayed over her. The congregation began to sing Isaac Watts' old consecrated hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die. And it was not at the first, second, third, or even fourth, at the fifth and last verse, Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. It happened. It happened. Suddenly, Fanny felt my very soul, she said, was flooded with celestial light. She leaped to her feet, shouting, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! And in her ecstasy, for the first time, she said, I realized that I had been trying to hold the world in one hand and the Lord in the other. Once later on in life, after writing many hymns, she was asked, is there a special hymn written for your conversion experience? Fanny replied, I would write many hymns to describe the joy of my salvation, but the one that stands out the most to me right now is this one. And she began to sing in her beautiful, sopranic voice, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Oh, church, may we cry with the writer of that song, His child and forever I am. Crosby embraced her blindness saying, When I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that my Savior, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Oh, we praise God for this. Praise, he said in verse 10 and 11. Praise the Lord of hosts. Bring sacrifices of praise into the house of God. We bring honor because God has made us worthy through His Son. But then God promises a new earth. Church, this is not all there is. I've seen a lot of beautiful places. I was talking with my doctor the other day, away from the office, and we were just talking about things. I said, Aaron, what, where's somewhere that you'd like to go you've never been? He said, you know, that's an interesting question. He said, most people think about going to far countries and do all that. He said, but for me, there's a few places in America that's as beautiful, I would think, as anywhere in the world. And I want to go see Yellowstone and Yosemite and see some of those places. Just for me, to see the Grand Canyon and how God carved that out of His creation. I've seen the volcanoes in Guatemala. I've seen the golden city Jerusalem as the sun rose and set upon it. I've been very blessed to ride out through the countryside of Hungary and through those European nations to see the Transcarpathian Mountains covered in snow, to fly over the Alps and to see the Eiffel Tower. I've been very blessed to see most of the Caribbean and almost all of Central America. I've been very blessed to see a lot of things. But there's nothing like the new earth only those who have enjoyed a new earth through the new birth will experience the new earth. Do you know, and I really didn't realize this until reading someone the other day, 
in the Bible, one verse out of every 21 verses in the New Testament speaks of the return of Christ. If you average them out, one out of every 21. Now think about that. That means that one out of every 21 youth lessons, one out of every 21 children's lessons, one out of every 21 sermons ought to contain something about the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. One out of 21 conversations that you have with someone. You see, we know that when Christ physically returns, He will establish a new society where goodness, love, and righteousness will prevail where there'll be no anarchists, no socialists, no terrorists or persecution in that day. They'll be tearing nothing down for it'll all be new. And there'll be nothing to be attacked for everyone will be of one family and one blood. The good shepherd will shepherd his flock. He said in verse 12, the Lord of hosts in this place which is desolate. He said, it's without men and Without beast, he said, shall again be a dwelling place of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down. Our shepherd, the good shepherd, shall take us in to green pastures and lead us beside still waters and cause us to lie down. Listen, the righteous king, he said in verse 14, behold, the days are coming. The days are coming. Young people, if you're not 16 yet, you're looking for that day that you turn 16. If you submitted a tax return and you're getting a check back, boy, you look for that day. You go to the mailbox with great anticipation of a stimulus check. But I'm telling you about the great day, the day of the Lord. That day is coming, said the Lord, that I'll perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. This is a prophecy of Jesus. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called the Lord our righteousness. For thus saith the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. God redeemed, God's redeemed people will enjoy a new earth ruled over by a righteous king. All of God's family will enjoy his lordship. There'll be no lob lob lobbyists. There'll be no hypocrisy. There will be no wolves in sheep's clothing. Only his righteous government. Oh, what a day that will be. Amen? Nobody with a private agenda. Nobody who has somebody's hands in their pocket or their po hands in someone else's. Only the Lord. And then, finally, the great high priest. He said in verse 18, Nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me. Listen, there were Levites who got it wrong. There were priests who failed the glory of God. But there's one, he said in Hebrews, that's greater than them all. Jesus Christ, the high priest. The reason that we can enjoy a new birth, a new worth and a new earth 
It's all because of our great high priest. He is the one who redeems us. He is our propitiation. He doesn't only make the offering, he is the offering. We could not and cannot save ourselves from the curse of sin. So he sacrificed himself to save us. Religion in that day will be dead, but relationships with Christ will flourish. In fact, you can begin that relationship even today. Now, I'm going to do something we haven't done in over two months. Really, three months. Almost four. Right now, I'm going to ask them to come to the instruments. And still being smart and respectful, there's plenty of room here to socially distance. But if there's ever been a time you need to get right up real close to somebody, you need to come and get in the face of God and cry, Lord, I'm a sinner. God, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm lost. and There is no hope. Lord, I'm saved, but I have rebelled. I'm as Israel that have turned my back on you. First of all, be the one who cries, God, give me a new birth. I see it in your word that the wages of sin is death, but I'm going to trust. I'm confessing my sins, but you'll give new life, eternal life. God, make my life count. Give me a new worth, and it's not in my opinion on Twitter. It's not in my post on Facebook. My worth is in you sharing truth that you have redeemed me. God, may I look forward with great anticipation to the day there will be a new earth coming down as John saw out of heaven, filled with your righteousness and peace. Church, things may look bleak today. They may look like they're just completely overwhelming. God, God is the hope for these troubled times. As we stand, maybe you're way overdue. But you need to come fall on your face and cry, God help me. As Fanny Crosby cried over and over, may we cry hallelujah. To God be the glory. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Lord, fix me, save me, forgive me. Charge me that I may go out and win others to Christ. Come, come in these troubled times. Come to Jesus.